You're listening to the Climbing Vines podcast, a series exploring the experiences of Black women on the University of Pennsylvania's campus. Welcome to this episode of the Climbing Vines podcast. My name is Arielle Winfield, and I will be your host. In today's episode, we have two Penn alumna here to talk about being Black and abroad. I personally have never traveled abroad in a dedicated study abroad program, but I've done a lot of traveling with my family and just for fun. Um, So today we have Raquel and Daniela to talk about their experiences. Let's start with you, Raquel. Okay, so hi. uh, So good to be here. I graduated from Penn uh, two months ago, uh, so May 2019. It flew by so fast. Um, I'm originally from Rockland County, New York, so I grew up out in the suburbs. Um, And I decided to come to Penn actually because of all the travel experiences that I saw. Um, And yeah, so I just go one by one into like each uh, trip. So my first trip, well, I guess overall, um, Penn has brought me to Israel, Rwanda, Poland, um, Los Angeles, Georgia, and Alabama. Um, And a lot of those trips were a combination of service fellowship trips, um, uh, trips related to academic uh, credits like that. Um, And then most recently went to Portugal in January as kind of my early uh, senior travel trip. Um, So when I first went to, my first travel trip was to Israel and that was um, freshman winter. Um, And I participated in this program called Birthright Israel, which is uh, pretty much a free 10 day trip for Jews. Um, You don't have to be a practicing Jew. You can be um, like ethnically Jewish or even a distant relative as long as you identify as Jewish in some way. I personally was raised Jewish, my mom is Jewish. Um, So anyway, it's a free 10 day trip and they take you all over the country to Haifa, Jerusalem, um, the Dead Sea, um, the Gaza Strip. So I got to see all the country. My best friend actually was just telling me about that. She was like, we need to do this trip because I'm personally not Jewish, but it sounds like a really amazing, enriching experience. Absolutely, yeah. The food was amazing. Uh, the people were great. Um, and they really put the effort in to give you an experience that's learning about not only the politics, but also the culture and people of Israel. And so I can learn more about um, Jewish people in Israel. So Nice. Um, so would you be able to tell us a little bit about you know your travels before Penn, if you had any? or um, some of your favorite places that you've visited while at Penn? Yeah, yeah. So before Penn, I've only been to Haiti and Canada. Um, I'm half Haitian, um, and my dad wanted to take me to Haiti just to see where he grew up in. Um, So we went to Port-au-Prince, Haiti. The country is absolutely beautiful. And I went in 2009, so this was a couple months before the earthquake happened. So everything was Mm. really intact, and fortunately, my family wasn't affected by it. But um, the country is beautiful, and I would like wake up and see just fruits and mangoes, wow. avocados, just like waking up to all of that. Um, and so beautiful country. And then uh, Canada, my mom loves Canada, so she would always take me to Toronto to go to like museums and like just to go around a vacation. So yeah. nice. And what about your experiences at Penn? What would you say was your favorite? Uh, I would say Rwanda. Um, mm. I went my sophomore spring, and that was my first time on the continent of Africa ever, so that was really cool. Um, I did this service learning fellowship with um, Penn Hillel, 
And the purpose of it was to bring people of different faiths and ethnicities to come together and to learn about the Rwandan genocide, mm. uh, which occurred in 1994. And we spent the whole semester fundraising for the school called Agahozo Shalom Youth Village, which was pretty much a school uh, a boarding school for students who were affected by the genocide. So we fundraised for the entire semester, and then um, like right like the day after finals ended, we flew to Rwanda, um, and wow. we we spent like a little over a week there, um, and we talked to the children. We learned more about the Rwanda genocide. Wow! So something so amazing like that. How was that being you know your first time in Africa and being a black person? Yeah, <laughs> it was funny because I thought that being in Africa would be the one place where I could be, I don't know, if, like all my natural features would be accepted. Right. So when I, I first stepped foot in Rwanda, um, the first thing that students or even people would ask me, all things about my appearance. So are your eyebrows tattooed? Is your hair fake? Um, like, what do you do to your skin? Like all these different things. And I'm thinking like, I'm in Africa. It shouldn't always right. be like wow. natural. I don't know. I don't know. Um, but then I remembered that I'm American and that just because I, I think that I have this sort of connection to ethnically to the continent that I could just blend in and I, I can't. So like right. visually, like sure, my skin tone might be the same as theirs, but I have my, my features are expressed differently. And um, so it was more of like a moment of like shock, like, why are you all picking? I just felt like I was being picked on when I first got there. <laughs> um, and the experience kind of evolved over the week that I had that I was there. Um, the most, I guess, shocking thing that I experienced was the, tr the treatment of black people there. Um, so when I was leaving Rwanda, um, I was with the group of Penn students and I was the only, actually one, only one of two black, black women there. And we were leaving um, this bus into the airport, and the security guy was like shuffling the group along, and then he stops at me and he says, "Show me your passport." Really? <laughs> what was his reasoning? He thought that I was trying to sneak into uh, the group of Penn students to go back to America. Apparently, wow. um, and he didn't say it in English either. He just like spit it out in in uh, Franco Rwandan, which is the language. Um, he says, show me your passport. And, and, and also I had, my hair was wrapped up in a, a scarf. So I don't know if that like made him think that I was Rwandan, but, um, I was talking to him. I was like, do I sound Rwandan to you? Like, I, <laughs> do I even look Rwandan? Cause I don't just for my week being there. Um, so it just felt like this weird version of racism in, in Africa, um, yeah, so that, that's what was my experience there. Yeah, that's really interesting to hear about the dynamics between you know African-Americans and Africans and uh, how basically they feel about the way we look or we feel about the way they look. Um, because in, at the, in the end of the day or at the end of the day, like we're all right. from Africa. Yeah, so it's yeah. really interesting. Um, Daniela, mm -hmm. how about you? How about your experience uh, at Penn, before Penn, your travel? Yeah, so just as by way of introduction, my name is Daniela Jones. I graduated from Penn in 2010, so I'm an old head. Um, while I was at Penn, I studied abroad um, in Spain, University de Alicante, uh, and I was one of three black women in my program. 
which is very interesting dynamic, particularly in that part of Spain, because there aren't many black people intentionally. Um, so I think Ooh, intentionally, what do you, uh, could you elaborate? Well, on that? yeah, Spain got rid of the Moors and all people of African descent in mm-hmm. that region, even though they are close to the northern portion of Africa. Mm-hmm. So they're not used to seeing black faces. And right. then I'm, you guys can't see me, but I'm like high yellow light, right? So it's a different experience for me personally than my friends who are browner. Pretty much like there's like, so being a black woman in Spain, like a lot of Spanish men are attracted to black women, but in a kind of a weird fetish way. So mm. as a college student, that was an interesting dynamic. My first experience with that. Was that uncomfortable for you? Yeah, definitely yeah. uncomfortable. Something to like be thoughtful of is right. like how men in the places you are traveling to like receive you. Yeah, um, absolutely. So that was kind of awkward. But again, for me, it's sort of like they were a bit confused, like what I was. They're like, you're black, but are you black? Like, so that was an interesting experience. Um, and then I've traveled a lot since college. Um, and then before college, I studied at Cambridge for the summer when I was in high school. Similar situation, like one of few black people in the program. But it was, we were much younger, so different dynamic. So I think until like Raquel's. Raquel, right? Yeah, Raquel's earlier point. I think that there's a distinction when you're traveling as um, a black person with a larger group that is majority white, as opposed to like now when I travel as an adult, usually my trips are other black people. Mm-hmm. So right. I too have been to the continent and I've been to Ghana and Nigeria and I went to Ghana with my with my one friend, it was just the two of us, we toured the whole country. A completely different reception if I was with a group of majority white students. What would you say are the main differences that you experienced? Well, white Americans are not as well received abroad. And I think I like to just, like when I travel, I like to make sure they understand that I'm a black American and that my experiences are completely different. Yeah. I think particularly like white American college students can read as a bit obnoxious and sort of like, you know, like the American stereotypes. Right. Um, then I think you can get grouped in with that, and that's why like the anti-American sentiment can be more felt if you tend to be in a group that's more mixed and more majority white. When I was at Cambridge, um, I, it was around it was the year after 9/11, and I remember I was actually in London, and there was something happening in one of the tube stops. I think there were like American tourists taking too long to purchase their tickets, and and the tube is the railroad. Yeah, like the, the tube is like the subway, right? like yeah. the train there. Um, but so one of the English men said like, oh. America deserved 9-11. It was like a very heavy anti-American sentiment, right? (laughs) Right, right. And I've, I mean, and I've traveled, like I went to Australia right after Trump was elected, which was a very fascinating experience. It was Australia and New Zealand. And um, a lot of the Aussies were asking me, like, did I vote for Trump? And I'm like, okay, let me explain racial politics to you and everything. (laughs) So it's like, you know, it's an interesting dynamic because you're they're typically thinking of you as like American and I think being a black American is a whole different experience absolutely um, yeah but it's interesting though because a lot of well not I'm not gonna say a lot but um, black people in America definitely some people definitely did vote for Trump so black men but some black women (laughs) too I was watching some YouTube videos and they were yeah but you know it's interesting in Australia because it's like so it was the first place I've ever felt privileged Really? And why and is that? So it's sort of like, 
it's hard to explain because I think as black women, we, we never really experience it. So for me, it was like this mystical notion. I was like, wait, what is this, this that people are like, not nice, but like unassuming. Mm-hmm. Just like being treated as a normal person without any like notion of like, oh, this person is making assumptions about me or is carrying certain like stereotypes. Like they just treated me like, so, a normal person and I was like wow that's really interesting feels like. yeah. yeah so the sense of normalcy was like privilege to you there right but what's interesting is I had a friend who um black American was working in Sydney and living out there and so he explained the hierarchy of how Aussies accept blackness so black Americans are at the top really and then, yeah, and then, like, um, European blacks, so typically, like, African and then Africans. And then at the very bottom, of course, their own black folks. So he would, he had a lot of white friends, white Australian friends, who would be like, ah, don't talk to indigenous people. Like, so there's this, there's this notion of, like, internal blackness or at-home blackness that you were familiar with was pushed aside. Mm-hmm. But, like, foreign blackness was elevated. And I think it was, because Australia is very, like, from a cultural perspective, I think it's very similar to American culture. Like, you could actually easily transition into living there. And so, as a result, like, they're heavily into, like, popular American culture. So, every party is, like, Beyonce versus Rihanna. So, I think, like, as a black American, like, my treatment is tied into their reception of mm. American culture, which is predominantly black culture. So, Absolutely. that was, like, a fascinating experience, especially, like, after Trump was just elected. Cause I was like, wait a second, I don't know what's happening in the States and then I'll show you treating me like I'm a person. Like, it was just like a whole, it was fascinating. That's like the best treatment I've gotten actually. In all the, out of all the countries I've been to, I feel like Australia was the one where I was like, hey, this is what a white man might feel like on any wow. given day. Wow, that's deep, seriously. Yeah. So let's take it back a minute. I know that Raquel mentioned that she grew up and was raised as a Jewish black woman. Um, would you be able to tell us yeah. a little bit more about that experience? Yeah, sure. So my background is very, I don't know, I think of myself as a unicorn. So my dad, as I mentioned, he grew up in Haiti and he immigrated to America in his 20s um, and he moved to New York. And my mom, so she is a Sephardic Jew. And uh, what that means is for for most people, when they think of Jewish, they think pasty white guy dressed in all black, right? But for uh, for myself um, and my ancestry, it's Sephardic Jews, so we are descended um, mostly from Morocco and Spain, but not really because they're kicked out. So Morocco um, and some even Mexico. Um, So my mom's Sephardic Jewish. She's also a bit African-American and German. Um, So a mix of, of a lot, but she's a black Jew. Um, and so that kind of colored my experience growing up heavily. Um, so as I mentioned, I grew up in Rockland County, uh, specifically Spring Valley, and it's mostly, you have, it's diverse, but it's pseudo-segregated. So there's half um, Caribbean immigrants uh, from Haiti, from Jamaica, from Mexico, Ecuador, and the other half is um, Ashkenazi Jews, who, who you think of when you think of Jewish, which is a white person dressed in all black. Um, and so I kind of had an experience of both worlds where even though my experience, my, or at least my household was pretty conservative Jewish, it wasn't um, Orthodox Jewish. So I wasn't, I didn't, I didn't exhibit those, um, those traditions. Um, so anyway, my high school was majority black and Latino. My, and I went to a public school, um, poorly funded, 
but I kind of made the most of it. I ended up at Penn, for God's sake. And then on the weekends, I would go to Sunday school, Hebrew school, um, and it was all white. And me and my brother were the only two black people. There's maybe one other Sephardic Jew. Um, I know one you, you should do? meet, and she's black as well. Really? That's how, Wait. She's the reason I know what how, like who Sephardic Jews are. Really? Yeah. I've actually never met a Sephardic Jew. Really? Yeah. No. She, her dad is like that, Turkish okay. Sephardic Jew, and okay. her mom is black yeah. American, but she was raised Jewish. Yeah, that's really dope. Okay, I'm you should connect, meet her. I'll connect you with her. Yeah, all my life I've grown up around Jews who were descended from Eastern Europe mostly, um, so just to have that experience and meeting other black Jews. At Penn, I did meet maybe two or three other black Jews, but we're like really hard to come by. Absolutely. <laughs> um, so yeah, the, the Hebrew school I went to was all white um, and very different from my public school. Um, and I could even see the differences in between funding and education like that. There's a whole scandal that, well, it's kind of ongoing with East Arapahoe Central School District, I'm going to call you out, <laughs> um, where the school board at the time was funneling funds away, government money away from public schools, which are majority black and Latino, and pivoting it toward um, yeshivas, which are all white Jewish mm-hmm. schools. Um, so that like really colored my experience growing up, especially feeling confused because I not that I was an Orthodox Jew, but I could see how they were reaping the benefits from having a funded education. Um, and then going to, to public school where the textbooks were older than I was or where the ceilings were literally falling through the roof. Um, so just a lot of confusion, but it took a lot for me to just learn through it. I, I, I even I wrote my, pe- my essay to get into Penn. I wrote it, the title was, Growing up black and Jewish in a town where blacks and Jews don't like each other. <laughs> wow, I would love to read yeah, that essay. Yeah. yeah, so that's kind of the backstory on me. I've been to Israel myself, and one thing that I was struck by was like birthright and like the Zionist movement. And I noticed when I went to Ghana that there we didn't really have that for the diaspora. So one of the things on my to-do list is like a nonprofit that creates the opportunity for people of the African diaspora to actually like travel back and not just the continent because there's already an organization called Birthright Africa that is affiliated with a few schools based out of New York and they curate trips to like Ghana. I think it's primarily in Ghana. But I'm also thinking like on a global level, like taking people to Haiti, taking people to Lisbon and interacting with like the Angolan and Mozambique populations there but also like going to Ghana going to Nigeria so I think like there's a lot we can take away from the Jewish diaspora and apply it to the African diaspora and loop it all with travel and also like promote like a pan-African commercialism that I think we're lacking but that's like a long story for another day um but just to give you my a little bit more about me so like I said I graduated Penn 2010 and then um, I went on to law school at NYU, graduated 2014. I'm currently an entertainment lawyer, which is cool because I get a lot of vacation time. Um, <laughs> I have unlimited PTO, so I take advantage of that, and I continue like my traveling now as an adult. So what are some of like the inspirations for where you decide to travel today? Yeah, so um, before I kind of had a bucket list where it was just like, oh, these would be places that would these are places that would be cool to go to. But then as I started to travel, like I noticed whenever I go somewhere, I do a deep dive on all things black. So like my most recent trip, I went to Greece for my birthday and I flew through Germany. 
And then when I got to Frankfurt, I was like, oh, there are black people in Frankfurt? Like, I never knew that. So I do my deep dives on Wikipedia, usually like where in the actual location I'm visiting. And apparently there's a whole entry on Afro-Germans and there's this really fascinating memoir about an Afro-German who grew up during Nazi Germany. So to answer your question, what I do now is I like to go to places that have connections to the African diaspora where I can like engage with black people who were raised in other countries and like share exchange and share experiences of what it's like to be black in different locations. I love yeah. that. Wow, I'm definitely gonna start doing that yeah. on my travels. Now. And I try to add a new like African country. Like my new thing is like I've been to Europe. That's cool. But like no one ever wants to go to the continent frequently. Right. So now I'm like, all right, I go to Ghana. I've been um I went twenty eighteen the first time. No, twenty seventeen. And then last year I went for Christmas and I added on Nigeria. And this year I'm going back to Ghana. It's the year of return. And I just like love Ghanaian culture. Um, and then I'm gonna try to add on another West African country. So all things black. That's gotcha. how I decide where to travel now. For those who don't know the year of return, can you explain a little bit about that? Yeah, so it's the 400th anniversary, I think, of the beginning of the transatlantic slave trade. So Ghana um, has a huge emphasis on bringing back the diaspora and welcoming people back to the country to visit the slave castles, to go to Accra and like experience Ghanaian culture. So it's this like very cool and sort of social media-esque movement right now so it, it unfortunately hiked up the prices but it's cool because it brings a bunch of different people to ghana and like exposes what modern west africa is really like because i think a lot of the issues too is like you know you're, you're taught like you go to africa on service missions or like third world country like what are you really going to expect when you go there and it's like actually it's kind of popping like like miami is similar to accra and so it's like that kind of like a party vibe especially for christmas and it's interesting when you said, like, when you went to Rwanda, you sort of stood out. So when I first went to Ghana, it was in um, November. So kind of, like, off-season, because Christmas is the high season for a lot of West African countries as everyone comes home. Um, so I stood out, because they were like, ooh, are you half cast? Are you, something happened here. And I was like, I'm American. I'm, like, Ghanaian by way of the transatlantic slave trade. That's always my response to people. And they're like, okay, I get it. Um, but then when, for Christmas, since there's more people in the mix, like, there's an array of hues. So I didn't really stand out because you'll see, like, all types of colors and, like, people mixed with Lebanese or just, like, Americans or people who live in Europe who come back. So there's much more of a wider range, I think, when you travel during Christmas as opposed to, like, when it's just people who are there the whole year round is that this year the 400th year yeah so bose who's the cmo of my company ironically enough um bose st john she is i love her doing yeah she's really cool we were so happy when they hired her because like finally black people um but so she's she she kind of like worked with i think the ministry of tourism in ghana um last year curating like the beginning of the year of return because there were a bunch of festivals and they bought like a lot of celebrities but this year um they're doing it again and she's doing a stars show so it's being recorded it's kind of like, it's like a very it's like a it's a thing it's like how they took art basel and made it a thing right it's it's a thing for black folks now 
So you should go if you can. Yeah, I would, I would love to. But because it's a thing, I was looking at prices. The prices. Night. The airfare is serious. It's super high. And, no, like, yeah. Afrochella <laughs> is also happening at the end of the year. And mm-hmm. I was looking at prices for that. Things are steep. It's Afrochella. And then there's another festival that's actually better than Afrochella. Oh. That they're rolling out for the first time. And then Mr. Easy has his, like, Dutchie rave that he does every year. So you can see Also, it's Afro- really lit. Okay. I was so lit. And then, you know, Beyonce just put all the Afrobeats artists on the on, on that the soundtrack. global map. So mm-hmm. they're always, always, they all always perform around Christmas time. So it's mm. going to be, like, it's not a vacation. It's like a party time. Got you. That sounds amazing, yeah. though. So back to you, Raquel. Um, when did you, just shifting the conversation a little bit, but when did you decide you wanted to travel while you were at Penn? And what are some of the resources you use to help you plan those trips? Yeah, so I knew I wanted to travel like right when I got to campus. Um, I made it a goal of mine to travel on each break that I had. Um, I think I made every single one except maybe one break. Um, and as far as some of the resources I used, um, like I mentioned before, Penn Hillel, um, GIC, Greenfield Intercultural Center. Um, in that trip, I was able to go to um, Alabama and Georgia to learn about the civil rights movement and also the Jews' role in the civil rights movement, which was cool. Um, I used Wharton. I went on a whip trip, Wharton Industry Exploration Program, or whip trip, um, and that brought me to LA um, to learn about the entertainment industry. Um, what other resources? Um, Those curated trips. Um, yeah. Did you really did Did you like having it curated like that, or would yeah. you prefer to do it on your I, own? I so I had to dig for it. Oh, just to backtrack, my goal was to travel and. I wanted to accomplish that because I knew I wanted to travel, but I didn't really want to pay for it because I didn't have the funds. So I made it a point to look for trips that were fully funded or look for trips that I could get fully funded. Or even if they had a price tag on it, I would literally just ask if there were funds available. Um, Because I don't remember who told me this, but before I got to Penn, I talked to, oh, it was um, an alum I did an interview with. She told me, Penn has money, you just have to find it. So Exactly. And that's what a lot of people don't know or understand. Yeah. They think that they have to do all these things on their own. Yeah. But Penn does have a lot of resources. They just yeah. need to do a better job of uh, you know, marketing them. Yeah. And even with these trips, like I had to go digging for them and I would tell my friends about them and they'd be like, Raquel, where are you finding all these? I'm like, I'm literally sitting on Penn.edu looking for um trips to travel to. So that was where I found GIC. That was where I found uh, Penn Hill and that was where I found um, uh, the Wharton trips too, so. Nice, and Daniela, what about your experience? I wish I did that. (laughs) So I didn't have all the resources. What I sort of, what I ended up doing is I took a loan out to fund um, my travel abroad while I was at Penn is actually the only student loan I ever took, which I wish I was on Google trying to get all the resources. But I did it for um, a language requirement. So in terms of just getting assistance, I worked with my Spanish instructor, and it was actually the only way I could get. I started with Latin for for two years. I took Latin in high school, and I realized there was no point in speaking Latin. And I was like, all right, I have to do Spanish, but I didn't have enough time to like really finish it during the academic year. And so study abroad was like the perfect combination of like getting my credits in and also getting my travel in. Because I always wanted to travel while I was at Penn, but because of involvement with campus activities, I, did, I could never commit to like a full semester. So the summer was a good way to do it. And, it, and I do think that in hindsight, if I knew that there were like um, break trips available, I would have totally pursued those. 
and got it resources for it. Um, but I think I echo all of Raquel's sentiments of just like if you can find the funds, go for it. And even like external organizations, I can't necessarily think of any for undergrad because it was so long ago. Long ago, but for law school, there were a bunch of like external orgs that would fund like break trips. You just had to do the research and find them. Got you. Awesome. So, if you guys. Both of you, this is a question for you both. Um, if you had to do these trips over again, what do you think you would change or what did you like most about them? What would I change? Well, okay. So what I ended up liking most is something that I would have changed in the moment is staying with the host family. It's like totally against my personality because it's like you're staying with a whole family that you don't know. And I did not speak... I wasn't conversational, so like I could understand, but it was I, they didn't speak English. I was kind of speaking a little bit of Spanish, so that was a very uncomfortable situation. But in hindsight, it was one of the better parts of my study abroad because it gave me like real life, twenty four seven exposure to like what it's like to to be in a Spanish household. So it's kind of interesting. I would have changed it in real time, but looking back now, I actually appreciated it. Um, one thing I would change on a programmatic level is just more diversity, but I don't have control over that, unfortunately. Um, it was difficult spending all that time. I mean, at Penn, I, had, I lived a very insular, like I lived in Du Bois. I'm, I'm like very much like Black Penn. So spending a summer where it was like one of three black students on the trip was very difficult, especially like in an all-white country. So I wish that there was more diversity in the in the um, programs, participants itself, but hopefully someone at Penn hears this. Right. <laughs> we can fix that going forward. Right, and before we move on to your response, Raquel, what would you say were some of the main differences you experienced like when you were saying you you know had to experience the cultural difference mm -hmm. of living in a Spanish household? What would you say are the main differences that you struggled with or enjoyed? Well, okay, so it's interesting. So my house mom, I actually have a bunch of anecdotes. So I wouldn't even know where to start, but okay. Let's do number one. In Spain, there's like this sentiment of like, dang, we lost our colonies even though it was so long ago. So I remember I was there during Puerto Rican independence and my host mom was like, oh man. I'm like, how long ago did you lose Puerto Rico? Like, you gotta let it go. Yeah. So it's like, <laughs> let it go. Right. Good. And you know, I was there doing, I mean, their economy is still not too hot, but it was like um, a depression. So it's like, Economy's not looking good, and they're a little salty about losing colonies. So it kind of was like that imperialism they couldn't let go, even though it had let them go a long time ago. Um, culturally, it was very interesting being black because I was there when Michael Jackson died, and they were straight up like, did you know Michael personally? And I was like, unfortunately not. I'm not from Gary, Indiana. I am black. I enjoy his music, but right. I don't have Joe Jackson or Janet like on the speed dial. Um, what else happened while I was there? So that's actually interesting. Like, just to before you move on, um, when he died, was I'm sure, obviously like the whole world was mm -hmm. affected by his music in a positive way. Um, were they like shook at all? Oh, yeah, they love MJ. It was like they would play okay. it in the house. Like they played the music, so they were asking me like to send their condolences. It was oh wow, it was they just were like asking yeah, for that reason. Yeah, they're like oh like we feel so sorry for your loss. We feel like it's our loss, and I'm like no, it's. 
it's, it's a our lot. collective it's, it's loss. A yeah, it's not as a Black American, I don't know Michael. Um, so I mean, it's, I think that those are like kind of like macro level differences of like their um, impressions of blackness or like thinking that we're all connected, which I think happens right. all, all over. But one thing that was interesting is like they're conservative, but not. So I'm Catholic and most Spanish people are Catholic. Um, but like my host sister could have, she was like 16. Her boyfriend could stay in, in the house, and I'm pretty sure they were having sex in the house. Oh and for me, God. I was like, never in a million okay. years would right. my family have let me do that. I was like, oh, this is different. This is a different household. But it was interesting, right? Because I think there were pros and cons. Because I I kind of think like the European notion of freedom. Like now that I'm an adult, like I appreciate like how free they are across the board, including in sexuality. But as I was 21 at that time, I was like, oh wow. I think my hostess, like, what's happening next door? So that was a cultural shock for me. And then um, I'm like a prissy. I'm like, okay, I'm a Queens native. So, you know, I grew up in the city, but I'm still like a prissy urban person. So my host mom had worms in her house. Yeah, oh, no. Worms. All right, so I looked in my toothbrush. And this Stop. was, this was Stop. I wish I could take that back. Because this was, like, I called my mom. I was like, I don't know what's happening. So I had, like, my toothbrush in a baggie, right? Because you don't ever want to leave the, the bristles out. Right, just out, yeah. So I look at my toothbrush, and I see something move. I was like, oh, wait a second. What is that? And there no, were worms. No. And then I looked up, and there were worms in the ceiling. And your host mom cooks for you, right? Ew. They prepare food. And I'm a very picky eater, so I had to send over, like, you know, I don't eat seafood, which is crazy in Spain. They're like, what? So they already had to tailor, like, the cooking for me. And then I was like, are there worms in the food? I remember calling my oh friend, my like, God. oh, my God. Oh, man. So that was a lot. I don't know if that was cultural, just like a weird experience no, for nasty. me. Yeah, I was just <laughs> like, the hygiene isn't up to par. But that was not across the board. I mean, her food was still good. It was a good learning experience, but there were just some hiccups along the way. Right. Um, but I think I learned the most out of like all my trips because when you spend that much time with someone's family, like I met like her brother and his kids and like went to multiple people's houses, went to festivals with them. You sort of like, you get beyond like the stereotypes of they had a perception of me as a black American. Like, the Michael Jackson thing is funny, but it's also, like, indicative of the, how far they are from knowing who I am. So spending that extended amount of time with them was actually useful, even though they were it was crazy right. getting through it. Wow. That's a good story. Yeah, I mean, Those worms. Not the worms, though. Yeah, that was, that's... Uh, that yeah. was why it was, it was my first um, host experience. It was, like, one and done. Now I stay in, like, five-star hotels with the kids. I don't need that authentic of an experience. Right? <laughs> <laughs> wow, that's crazy. Um, Raquel, what would you say are some of you know the things that you would change or that you liked best about your experiences? I think looking back, I wish I read more about the experience of black people in this place that I was going to because a lot of the trip or all of the trips were curated. So there was an agenda of learning about the culture of learning about XYZ event. But I never took the time to actually learn about how do how are black people treated at these mm -hmm. places. So like when I went to Israel or when I went to Poland um, and even Rwanda, I never took the time to actually try and Google and search like, I wonder how I'll be treated when I go there. Um, and particularly um, the one that stood out to me is my experience in Israel. So there, from what I read, there's rampant racism in Israel as much as there is in the U.S. Um, and there's 
a lot of uh, plenty of black Jews, especially Ethiopian Jews, and they have the same experience that black that black Americans have in America. Um, and so I I wasn't completely aware of all of that. Um, but surprisingly enough, I didn't experience overt racism while I was there. And I think pr that was particularly because I was in this insular bubble of white pen Jews, so that I and they had an I not that an IDF soldier can protect you from racism, but we, I felt like we were insulated in, in this bubble of like traveling Americans and traveling white, sorry, traveling white Jews. Um, so I didn't experience that. And so I didn't, I wasn't fully aware of that until I talked to other black Jews who had been to Israel talking about how they were literally spat on or mm. they experienced like over, overt racism. And so, yeah, I wish I would have read more about the experiences of black people in the places. Got you. So both both of you guys, um, what was your experience while you were abroad as a student? Uh, was the course load heavy? Was Did you have a lot of free time to travel around and see sites? Or what was that like? So the trips that I did were very structured from like 8 a.m. to the evening. Everything was planned out. So I didn't get the opportunity to do whatever I wanted or travel any other way. Um, and then in terms of just my experience there, because it was all the trips were short term. I never felt like, oh, when am I going to go home? It was more like, let me make the most of every single day I'm here because I'm not going to be here for a long time. So, Got you. Um, yeah, I would say, so we had class Monday through Thursday, um, and we would go from like early in the morning, maybe like 7 or 8 until 1 for siesta, which I really like. Um, and then we would come back. So it was like a lot. It was a heavy course load. It was sort of like, it felt like one semester smashed into the summer, but like not as much time. So I feel like I had a lot of tests, a lot of hours in the classroom. And then weekends, you could travel, but they discouraged travel to certain places. So they were like, don't go to Morocco, because there's no guarantee you'll get back in time. So I only actually traveled one weekend. I went to visit my friend, no, two weekends. I went to visit my friend who was um, in London, and then I went to Barcelona. And then other than that, we had similarly like heavily structured schedules. So when we were traveling from Madrid to Alicante, it was like very regimented. So there wasn't a lot of time. I mean, I got homesick because I told you about the worms. Right. Um, but other than that, I think it was more so like experiencing the actual location you were in as opposed to really traveling outside of that that specific location. Right. And do you have any like outstanding favorite moments that you had? Yeah, mm, outstanding favorite moments. Um, so I went to Portugal in January. Um, that wasn't a trip with Penn, um, but this was just like a personal trip with my friend. Um, and one thing I loved about Portugal, I went to Lisbon. I think you mentioned mm -hmm. yeah. Um, I loved the how everybody treated everybody. Um, most people thought that I was Angolan, actually. So a lot of people came up to me speaking either Portuguese or French, but mo mostly French. Um, but for some reason, I didn't take those impositions as like, I wasn't offended at all by, by their assuming like my identity. And a lot of it came from um, them just asking me about myself. I, I just didn't, I just didn't feel I just didn't feel, offended. yeah, I didn't yeah. feel offended by anything. Or even if they were curious about things about me, it wasn't like, can I touch your hair? It was more right. like, 
So like, what do you? How do you? How do you yeah, treat your it hair? It wasn't like an invasive yeah. thing. Yeah, it was really just a genuine <laughs> yeah. question, wanting to get yeah. to know about you. Yeah. And then outside of being black, the food in Portugal is real good, um, yes. and the wine's good too. Yeah. So. <laughs> so one thing you can that I like to do when I travel, just to like get a feel for how black people are treated, I always talk to my drivers whether or not they're black, mm-hmm. and I bring up race because I'm American, um, and that's all I know. But I always like <clears throat> try to dig deeper and be like, especially if they're black, like. So, like, what's your experience like, or like, how are you treated? Especially like in Portugal, like I had an Angolan driver, mm-hmm. and he told me like the rundown of his whole family. But I feel like that's a quick way to just get intel like, yeah. on mm-hmm. the ground. That's smart because drivers—they have to know all about where you know they're taking you because mm-hmm. that's their job. So that's really a really good piece of advice to take away. Um, do you guys? each have any more little nuggets of advice that you know any Penn students might want or anybody really listening yeah I mean I think definitely look for your resources like we said before Um, take advantage of your student years to travel because once you're adulting, it's yeah, not always that easy. Like now it's my second week on the job. I don't know when I'm gonna get yeah, a break. It's the ghetto. Adulting yeah. is the ghetto. Like, it's yeah, like and it. nobody tells you that, but you know, we're here to do that. So yeah, I mean, I think you know, take advantage of it, and also like you, you're paying to just learn. So it's like you could actually take a class and then go take a trip related to it. Like as a, one of the domestic trips I did at Penn was for Art Basel. I took a class on like art exhibitions and then it culminated with a trip to Art Basel, which is very interesting. So it's like one of the few instances that you just have dedicated time to like learn and then you can go see what you learned about in, in person in real life. I don't know. If you're black, go to black countries. Like be cognizant of where your dollars are going. So obviously that is a very complex topic, <clears throat> very like tied to colonization and just capitalism overall. But I think if you, to the extent that you can, if you're spending your own coins or the university's coins, support places that need it. Absolutely. I think it's important to think about how your tourism is a tool, like yes. an economic tool. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. And me personally, like I didn't get the opportunity to study abroad while I was at Penn because of uh, sports. I was on the volleyball team and the track team and I had a lot of extracurricular activities. And that's one thing that I... If I could do pen all over again, I would try my hardest to fit that in somewhere because mm-hmm. it's more than just an enriching experience. It like it adds value to the places that you're going as well because you know how you say you spent all that time with your host family and in Spain they got to know what a Black American is really like right. instead of having this you know fake vision in their head about <laughs> Michael Jackson right. or whatever else it may be. Um, Raquel, do you yeah. have any advice? that you want to share? Going off that, I would say, if I could talk to um, a Penn student, I would say just know that, be curious, and know that there isn't only one way to study abroad, like the classic go a whole semester right. abroad. Like For me personally, I actually went through the application process. I applied, I was a communications major, and I applied to Goldsmith School in London. And when the time came up to like do my paperwork and all that, I was like, I don't want to go to London for six months. For five <laughs> the months. same thing happened to me. Really? You went wow. to the application I process? was like, yeah, I could I like, go or not. Yeah. Because <laughs> for, for communications majors, the primary destinations are either London or Australia. Yeah. And that's it. And I just wasn't feeling it. Um, so I just 
took it upon myself to say, okay, I'm not having the traditional, you know, five months abroad, but I am having one week excursions and, mm-hmm. and paying little to nothing for it. Um, so just, and I enjoyed myself, I think as much as I would if I were to go away for a lot of months at a time. So just, there's only one way to study abroad and. Absolutely. Know. I have one thing to piggyback off of that. And now this is going to be a stretch, so just, like, follow me. Because, you know, I'm, like, an old sort of, like, hippie. But I'm a big proponent of astrogeography, right? So <clears throat> I believe in, like, natal charts and all these things. So essentially, it's based off your natal chart. It tells you certain places in the world where you just have, like, you're more connected or you have, like, certain, like, solar lines. And so I have lines in certain places where I've dated people from those places before I visited them. And I learned from those relationships, all the things that said I would learn from visiting the place. So the stretch is that you actually are at like a school that has a bunch of international students. And you can like get some of the knowledge and takeaways by just meeting people on your campus. That could eventually lead to like travels to go back to like their homes. Like there's just ways to tap into international experiences even while being domestic. Wow, I think that's that's like my roundabout hipster way of saying it. Yeah, Yeah. (laughs) I love that though. I've never even heard of like natal charts like used in that way. Um, But that's actually a good segue to my next question. Um, Did you guys have any love experiences on these trips or have, you know, any relationships back home that you were trying to maintain while you were abroad? So the thing is, and we can be candid, right? Yes, be candid, girl. I'm a germaphobe. (laughs) So, Ooh, me too. same here. Oh, me too. I actually, now, I, I mean, I will check STD rates when I'm visiting places just to be, like, I'm, wow, that's I'm smart, like that, though. you know. That's smart, though, right. because you never know what's going to happen right. while you're on that trip, and if you decide to partake in that way. When they say go to the CDC, like, I, I well, we could also talk about vaccinations, because that is a big component of traveling as yes, well. It's also, please. like, getting your visas if they're required, but, like, I read the CDC stuff, like, very thoroughly, like... Not just from STDs, I want to know, like, have A, have B, have C, like, give me tetanus. Like, yeah, I have everything. all of the vaccination now. So, no, I don't have love affairs because I'm crazy. And <clears throat> I just think of, like, the exposure we get domestically is it's too much. haunting too much. enough. <laughs> I don't really need the international layer unless it's, like, this is my husband and I'm living here. But so, no. So, I have not. Got I you. have friends who have, but I'm not that daring. Got you. Mm, so I'm a germaphobe too. Um, I was single throughout all my trips, um, and I made it a point to not interact with people while I was abroad because I didn't look into like the the depths of the rates and all that. Cause I I would just like freak myself out. But I just made it a point to not do that. Um, Swiping through Twitter, Tinder was enough for me just to like oh, see, that is fun. Oh, wow. just to like see oh, yeah. who was attracted to me. Um, that was enough. I didn't need physical interaction or anything like that. Um, I will say, though, um, when I went to Rwanda, we had a layover in Qatar. And Tinder there, like, that was where I had the most attention for some reason. Really? So, wow. Yeah. Yeah. So. Okay. UAE, maybe next. Maybe your husband's in Qatar. <laughs> I will plug Tinder in international um, territories is a good way to get your lingual skills up to par. Because if you can have a conversation with someone, that's, like, a good test. That's what Absolutely. I used it for. I think That's I was in Puerto Rico. I was like, let me try my Spanish. That's good. Awesome. That's smart. Well, thank you guys. This was an awesome discussion. I really enjoyed having you both here. Um, Thank you all for tuning in and listening to this episode of the Climbing Vines podcast. Um, Please make sure to check out the rest of the series. 
Thanks Thank you. you. Thanks, guys. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Climbing Vines podcast. Please check back on our website, cvines.org, for more information about the project.